Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large at EdSource. Welcome, John. Great to be back, Louis. Another week in California, and this week we're going to be talking about a proposal that a very well-known retired staffer has put forward to see whether California could figure out a way to get more money to its schools. That's right. And also, we're going to be looking at a new AP computer science course slash exam that seems to be attracting students of color and girls in large numbers. Really good news. And we'll also be talking about a settlement in a lawsuit in Kern County around school discipline that actually has some really innovative and we think potentially unique aspects in terms of focusing on what is called implicit racial bias. Absolutely. Very important case. Well, John, let's jump in with a proposal that Rick Simpson has made. Rick is well known to many education experts and practitioners. He's been in the trenches for many years, worked for Mm. nine different speakers of the assembly. That's right, over 38 years. John, one of the big challenges in California is that Prop 98, very complicated law, was passed in 1988. It was supposed to set a floor for the amount of money going to school districts. And California schools actually get about 40% of the state budget every year. It varies depending on these different so-called tests in Prop 98. But actually what it's turned out is this has turned out to be the ceiling for how much school districts get. Now, to the average person, the schools already get a huge chunk of California's general fund revenues. But uh, California still lags tremendously in terms of how much money goes to each student per capita. Right. Depending how you measure it, it's it's in the middle or it's very low. So Rick has come up with an idea, just in at the idea stage, for how to break this logjam in terms of funding. Yeah, Rick has been thinking about this for a long time. He's actually been involved in the enforcement and negotiations over time of Prop 98. So he knows its strengths and weaknesses. And it's become, as you say, it's it's a floor by initiative, but it's really a political cap. It's the legislators who could actually approve more, and it does fluctuate from year to year depending on the economy. But over the long haul, you're right, it's been about 40%. So if you want to raise more money, as many people agree we should do for schools, his thing is what you got to do is give the local districts more power to raise money themselves, which they cannot do right now. So his idea is that you And why give, can't they do that? Was it Prop 13? Is that- partly, it's very com- that too is complex. It's related to Prop 13, but the fact is they can only raise pretty much parcel taxes, and that requires a two-thirds vote. Which is very hard to get. It, well, it's only about one ten percent of districts do it. Many districts don't even try. And it's uniform, parcel tax is uniform per property. So it's seen as regressive because no reflection of how big the property is or how wealthy the property owner is. So Rick's saying, we'll give to schools what we give to counties and cities, which is the authority to to levy what's called a general tax. And that only requires a majority vote. So what would it take to give school districts that ability? Well, And the, and the general tax could be what? Like a sales tax or what? what kind of... What kind of tax are we talking about? Well, first thing would have to happen is that you'd have to create this initiative to pass it. And I I talk with Rick at length, obviously, for the story and let him describe why we need it. 
Well, I don't think there's really any other option for getting additional resources or substantial additional resources to schools. It's federal government, state government, and local government. And I think the likelihood of the federal government, you know, providing more money to schools is vanishingly small. At the state level, with all the competing demands for state resources, whether it's health care or corrections or whatever, and the fact that, by and large, Prop 98 is viewed as a, both a constitutional floor but a political ceiling. I think local resources of some variety is really the only practical option available to schools to raise substantially additional money beyond what they would otherwise receive in Prop 98. That was Rick Simpson, who was an advisor, special advisor on education to nine speakers of the assembly over almost 40 years. And so, Lewis, what you asked was, how do we decide which tax to do? And the first thing to do would be to pass this initiative, giving the authority to raise taxes at 50%. And then Rick's idea is that you would give a menu of possibilities. Perhaps it was a sales tax, which counties and cities use now. Perhaps it would be an income tax. If you're in a district that doesn't have a lot of retail, but is wealthy, lots of wealthy folks, that could be a possibility. Or the other thing is you could group a number of districts together, rich and poor, because that's one of the issues is the equity issue. Rick says you could do that, or perhaps the legislature would have to appropriate money so that you'd equalize the capacity. So, so just let me clarify that issue, because that is a key issue that wouldn't you just have a situation where wealthy districts could raise higher taxes and poor districts would obviously be disadvantaged? And that was what the Serrano Priest decision was all about in, in the 70s around property taxes, where the Supreme Court, California Supreme Court, outlawed funding schools based on the property tax wealth of a district. So the irony here is that, in fact, after Serrano, the legislature actually passed a system that would have equalized the property taxes. But a year later, Proposition 13 came along, so it nullified that. So the legislature has given us some thought, but that was a long time ago. And, and Rick says, yeah, it's a big issue. We all recognize that. So the legislature would have to create a new system to do that as well. So, John, just remind me, this has to go to the voters it would have to be a constitutional amendment approved on an initiative. And what does that take? 50%, two-thirds? 50%, yes. Okay. So what are the odds of voters going for this? Well, I asked Rick that very question. Why would voters go for this? And this is what he had to say. We've given local communities the decision now over how to spend most of their money. But we haven't given them any power over how much resources they have to spend in the first place. So I think marrying both responsibility, which they have now, and authority could be um, attractive. And that was Rick talking about his plan. John, this seems like a good idea. I can imagine that other people may have thought about this in the past. To me, it seems like a long shot to actually convince voters to do this, but you'd also have to raise large sums of money to get this initiative on the ballot and get it approved. What's your take on the lay of the land is for something like this? Well, we're headed into a period where basically for schools, expenses will outpace revenue. All the predictions say that. That alone probably won't do it. But Rick reminded me that it took about 12 years from the time the idea of lowering the threshold for school bonds was first raised it took 12 years for that actually to pass under Prop 39. And once it passed, it had a dramatic effect in the ability of districts to raise money. So I think you have to take the long view and that it's not going to be easy and it may take some time. 
And the merit of one of the merits of this is at least it puts a proposal on the table because I'm sure, like me, most meetings of gatherings of education advocates in California, this issue always comes up that California lags behind other states and everybody is saying we need to raise more money. But the vehicle to do that is, of course, what's on the table. So at least this gives us something concrete to talk about. Well, Rick always says, I'm just a policy wonk. But on the other hand, he was part of many negotiations over many decades. I think he'd probably be a pretty good salesman. Well, we're going to shift gears and we'll be back in a minute with Jane Adams, our student wellness reporter, to talk about a settlement of a school discipline lawsuit in Kern County in the Central Valley. We're here with Jane Adams, our student wellness reporter. Welcome, Jane. Hey, Lewis. Good to be here. Jane, you wrote about a, to me, seemed like a significant lawsuit that was settled in Kern County, Kern Union School, High School District. It's the high school district there. Which is a huge district, right? Yes. It's the second largest high school district in the state. It has about 38,000 students. So what was the issue here? Community activists and parents and students have been talking for years about what they feel is racial bias and disproportionate application of discipline in the district, saying that African-American kids, which are about 6% of the student body, are way, way more likely not only to be suspended, also expelled, but sent to these alternative schools where parents say the education is subpar. Now, the district said they settled this. They just wanted to get this kind of off the books. But really, they've instituted a lot of practices to deal with the disproportionalities. And really, there is no explicit racism in the district. Is, is that is that Right. That's ba- what the district said. It, it said there was no need for this lawsuit, that it admitted no wrongdoing, and that it was moving ahead on some of these alternative approaches to discipline, such as restorative practices or positive behavior techniques. The advocates who brought the lawsuit would say, yes, they had the district had done some pilot programs here and there, but there'd been no systematic training of teachers or widespread application of alternative methods. Now, we talked with Alison Elgard, who is the legal director for the Equal Justice Society. It's one of the law firms that brought this lawsuit on behalf of students and parents in the district. And uh, we asked Alison about implicit bias, because this is, this is one of the interesting parts of this settlement, not alleging explicit racism, but implicit responses to students, particularly African-American students, effectively based on their race, and that this is kind of an unconscious response. And uh, so we asked Alison, what does this implicit bias consist of? It operates in the unconscious. But what happens is it is because people have these implicit associations, it then affects their decision-making. And there are very subtle ways that people can change their practices so that they are not relying on these biases. For example, there have been studies that teachers' mentality towards students and how they view the students and whether they view how they're going to treat the students in a punitive manner versus a nurturing manner. And just that shift in their orientation can actually affect the number of suspensions and expulsions of students, and particularly students of color. Um, because they tend to be victims more of these stereotype threat of implicit bias, of racial anxiety. That was Alison Elgard from the Equal Justice Society. We asked her how the settlement will 
address this issue of implicit bias. And it basically means bringing in a lot of outside experts to work with staff in the district. The point of bringing in these experts who can really look at how the teachers and administrators and police and other staff, whether it's cafeteria staff or bus drivers, all the staff are reacting to the students and making sure that they're not relying on implicit associations that they have about certain race of students and who might be more threatening or who might be more intimidating or who might not be able to achieve in the same way and and make sure that they're taught interventions and taught methods that they're so that they are not relying on their biases and that they are really treating students equally and treating them in a less subjective manner or less discriminatory manner because that's where really the bias can come in. That was Alison Elgard, legal director for the Equal Justice Society in San Francisco. Jane, tell me about this implicit bias. This, is this unique to this kind of settlement or has this happened elsewhere? It's happened elsewhere, and I suspect it will be happening more often. There was a lawsuit in the Antioch Unified School District brought by the NAACP that said implicit bias was also at work there in the rates of suspensions being dished out to African-American students. And they reached a settlement in lieu of a, a lawsuit. They came together, the district and the NAACP, and created this plan, bring in the same, outs- not same, but similar idea, the outside experts. And they started the process a little bit. The district got to choose who the experts were and how this would be addressed. And part of it was having teachers write in about the unconscious stereotypes that we all carry. And that blew up the whole process of trying to deal with implicit bias. According to voices on either side, they said teachers were afraid that Somehow this would become publicly known that they had written down whatever stereotypes they had grown up with. They didn't want to participate anymore, and that resulted in a lawsuit last summer being brought against the district. Well, and uh, Equal Justice Society, I believe, is also involved with that lawsuit. So this is tough stuff, actually, surfacing these uh, implicit biases. But Jane, this wasn't the only issue or settlement aspect? No, um, an important part in terms of the advocate's point of view were these community forums. So getting these tough conversations out there about implicit bias or about what is actually happening, how many students are being suspended, what their ethnicity is, where it's happening, is difficult for parents. So the lawsuit calls for two meetings a year called community forums at which the district will come in and have to present its data, explain investments in training and programs, and parents will have a chance to bring their thoughts to the process. Jane, I do want to point out that this lawsuit was brought in 2014. And in fact, the data suggests that there's been a lot of progress, I mean, statewide in terms of reducing the disparities, that this this is an issue where actually there's been some really positive movement in the state. Interesting you mentioned that, Lewis. I had a chance to check the California School Dashboard, which, of course, measures all these indicators in each school and district. And interestingly enough, in the latest dashboard, showed that current high school district was actually getting red, the lowest of all the five indicators in suspension rates. And in fact, uh, the suspension rates had increased for almost all groups of students in the first year. So it looks like it has a lot of room to improve. 
Of course, John, we don't know what actually was going on in the district in terms of why they got that rating. There may have been some increase in behavior, problems that didn't exist before. So these are complex issues. In general, across the state, there has been improvement. But uh, obviously, this lawsuit should make a difference in Kern County. That's the belief. So we'll see how it works. Thank you, Jane. You're welcome. After a short break, we'll be back with Carolyn Jones, our math and science reporter. Hi, we're back with uh, Carolyn Jones. Carolyn, you've been covering the issue of computer science, and one of the issues has been the low percentage of girls and minorities who enroll in AP coding. And so you wrote a story this week that had some pretty interesting results. Yeah, it was really interesting, actually. Um, Educators are delighted in the results from the College Board this year that were just released. Um, Girls, especially, showed a huge jump in participation in AP computer science, and African American and Latino students also as well showed big increases. Well, there's a new course this year, the first year of that. Tell us about what that is and whether it attracted more students. This year, the College Board launched a new computer science class called Computer Science Principles, which is focused not so much on coding, but on the big ideas behind technology, such as the global impact of the internet and big data and cybersecurity and issues like that, which is intended not necessarily for kids who want to be programmers when they grow up or major in computer science, but just understand the thing that is affecting their daily life so much. So it did, in fact, accomplish what they were hoping for and attracted a lot more girls and a lot more underrepresented minorities. Is the hope that once students take this initial course, will in fact perhaps do additional courses in coding? Well, I think, sure, they would love that. But not necessarily. I mean, computers impact almost every single career. And even if you don't go to college at all, understanding computers is a good thing. Were the percentages of students who actually got, what, three out of five, three or more, is what you need to pass on the AP test. How were those results? I think 75% of the kids who took this AP computer science principles test scored a three or above, which is fantastic. Although because it's the first year, there are a few little glitches in the tests. And so it's not super reliable right now. Just give us some numbers too, so we can get some sense of, of, of the scope of this this course. Sure. Well, the number of students who took both the regular computer science coding class and the principles class, the number, the AP test, the ones who took that is 111,262 nationwide. And of those, 27% were girls, which is a huge jump. Back in 2007, it was only 18%. And then for underrepresented minorities, we had 20%, which was also a huge jump. Ten years ago, it was only 12%. I guess there's still plenty of room for improvement in, in coming years. Oh, definitely, definitely. Everyone agrees, yeah, girls should be at 50% and uh, you know, underrepresented minorities should not be underrepresented. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is going to happen in the next couple of years will be a new framework or curriculum for in computer science that other states have, I believe, but California has not had. That's right. California is updating their computer science framework to reflect, you know, current technology and expand it a little bit. So it's, you know, it does include sort of these bigger concepts and they're working on that now. It's one step in many, many, many steps. But Carolyn, 
there is an effort in California to introduce computer science across the whole curriculum, almost beginning in kindergarten. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, some districts now have, you know, kindergartners learning how to use the computer all the way up through 12th grade. And there's a real strong effort to get that across the board in every school in every district. The leader of code.org says, you know, ideally, every kid, every kid should be learning this stuff right from the get-go. And it should be incorporated into all the different subjects they learn one way or another. And this This course kind of highlights the fact that really we have to be looking at providing opportunities and vehicles for kids across the whole education spectrum, not only when they begin school, but also as they are leaving school, that's going to situate them in terms of actual careers going forward. Absolutely. Another issue, too, is that, you know, until recently... Typically, just the most affluent schools had computers for kids and the kids had internet access at home and so forth. And now there's a real effort to get every high school to offer these AP computer science classes and every elementary school to offer this for children and every middle school. And so, you know, we're starting to see some real progress there. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Carolyn. Carolyn Jones, math and science reporter for EdSource. Thanks. And that wraps it up for this week in California education. If you like what you hear, please help others find us by leaving a review of the podcast on iTunes. And remember to check out our website if you are interested in attending our symposium on October 5th in Oakland on the theme of Education for All, Serving California's Vulnerable Children. I'm Lewis Friedberg, here with John Fensterwald. Our producer is Sarah Tan. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.